Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. But first, let's check in with a member of the investments team from Monks Hill Ventures. Arun Pai always helps us. Um, he makes investing a little bit more understandable, you know, breaking down the jargon for us. Arun, good morning. Welcome to Money and Me. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I feel it's been a very long time since we chatted, Arun, but we're glad <laughs> to have you back on air. Let's start with the U.S. Chips and Science Act. So yesterday on the show, we discussed this act, which U.S. President Joe Biden signed into law on Monday. The bill includes more than 52 billion U.S. dollars in grants and other assistance for American companies producing semiconductors. And Micron has already announced a major investment because of it. So a new bill meant to lower costs, bolster U.S. leadership in semiconductors by providing some $52 billion for semiconductor research and development in the U.S. I just spoke with a guest earlier this morning who had, who described the semiconductor industry so beautifully. He said on the back of this tiny chip is the world making its way into the future. That was really brilliant. So when you look at the U.S. Chips and Science Act, Arun, do you think that this is really going to shape up, shake up the semiconductor industry? So much of it focused on Taiwan right now. And if you look at the Chips and Science Act, are chips worth buying now is an investor question. What do you say to that? Right. So, I mean, firstly, the $52 billion, uh to fund domestic semiconductors, uh, obviously a large, chunky amount. But on top of that, there's another like $200 billion in various grants over the next five to 10 years that the U.S. government is going to be doling out, right? So mm-hmm. from that perspective, uh, the U.S. has been caught in a very difficult place right now where uh, given COVID, supply chains got disrupted. Given the U.S.-China trade wars, the U.S. is getting a lot more afraid about China's uh, imminent rise to power. And they really want to bring back domestic manufacturing of chips which obviously $52, $53 billion uh, at least kickstarts that process, right? I, I think one thing of concern, though, is it's not just the grants to be it American companies or the likes of TSMC, Samsung, etc., to come and set up shop over here. Mm-hmm. There also is a clause that any company that takes advantage of these grants, they will not be allowed to export 28 nanometer uh, chip size tech, uh, tech uh, chips or anything older, uh, or they can only, they're only allowed to export 28 nanometers or technology older than that for the next 10 years to China. So I think this is a bit of a, uh, like, they're trying to, you know, kill two birds off with one stone. On the one hand, bring manufacturing uh, in-house, like onshore, but at the same try- time, trying to stifle Chinese growth. And And this is common to you know, if you look at the Chip 4 Alliance, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, U.S., uh, where they're trying to make all these uh, collaborations that take place to really try and put a break in what's happening in China. So from that perspective, uh, obviously people in China are extremely scared. Uh, if you look at uh, stock prices recently, uh, I mean, in spite of like the big rally overnight uh, yesterday on the back of inflation news, uh, things do seem to be uh, boding well for local chip manufacturers across the U.S. You know, like Intel was one of the companies that was actually looking to buy a plant in China, but then decided to have a chat with the U.S. government about this and try to push, get this bill uh, signed off into law uh, before 
the Senate and the House goes for recess in August, uh, later in the uh, later in the month, that is. So putting all of those things together, uh, it does seem like uh, all the pain that uh, U.S. chip manufacturers especially have experienced over the past five, ten years, where a lot of companies have been just going to China as the cheapest source of manufacturing of this, Mm-hmm. It does seem to be uh, boding quite well for uh, the underlying business. So clearly the U.S. trying to undercut or limit China's influence and even, I suppose, imposing on East Asian manufacturers certain expectations in terms of them being able to expand their capacity in China. They won't be able to uh, when it comes to that particular chip. But do you think when you look at this legislation, is the U.S. so far behind its competitors in the semiconductor chip manufacturing area? Is this legislation too little too late? Yeah, that's a great question, to be honest. And again, looking at it from both sides, right? I mean, SMIC, uh, Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation, which is China's flagship uh, chip manufacturer, uh, everyone thought that they only had the capabilities to produce uh, 14 nanometer uh, chip sizes. Uh, recent news media came out where analysts claimed that they could come down to 7 nanometers. So uh, the aspect of trying to block a country that is as strong and intellectually capable as China is easier said than done. Right mm-hmm. now, obviously, TSMC still has a little bit of a head start, and they're going into uh, four nanometers uh, size potentially. But it, it's not as straightforward as, on the one hand, trying to stop China, mm-hmm. and as you rightfully mentioned, while obviously fifty-three billion dollars uh, is a lot of money, boundaries are very, very expensive to make, and it's not that you can just wave a magic wand and suddenly, like six months later, uh, this kind of tech can be set up on shore, right? So, but is it the right first step? And is it required to ensure that the US has an ability to maintain the entire supply chain uh, onshore? Absolutely. From a perspective of an investor and a global investor at that, mm. you know, by, by all means, right? Like ensure that you can try and prop up your own local industry. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, China's done that themselves, right? Especially in the EV space. But the aspect of trying to block certain technology, especially if it's non-military related to another country, especially one which is the second largest uh, economy in the world, that brings up a lot of uh, question marks, uh, you know, geo instabilities, which uh, the Chinese government and various embassies and stuff have come out uh, requesting them to, if you want to pump in capital into your own own industry, by all means, but don't have that blockade for giving for and allowing these companies to provide the tech into China. And that's something that's quite concerning, I would say. Yeah, there's an interesting piece in the People's a tabloid that's associated with China's People's Daily, which is the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party. And it says it's described the Chips and Science Act as a regression of history. And it says, you know, it calls into question whether you can artificially isolate China, which is the world's largest market from the industrial chain. Now, if you look at China, and, and this measure, Bloomberg has a great article arguing that over 20 years, Beijing, while it's tried to beef up its own semiconductor industry, has been undermined. Its efforts have been undermined by corruption, overambitious goals. So China, has it painted itself into a semiconductor corner to some extent? Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, my take is the Western media definitely tries to paint uh, China in a little bit more of a negative light than what is really happening. And, and I mean, we've seen this across a variety of industries, right? When China really make, like puts its head down and uh, decides to uh, pump in a lot of capital, both uh, you know, monetary as well as intellectual, into a certain space, 
they've managed tremendous growth. Now, when it comes to extremely high-tech industries, uh, of which, you know, chips is obviously up there, there are, there's, you know, there's this company, ASML, out of the Netherlands, uh, and a couple of other really key uh, companies which have to enable uh, technology to be sourced from to complete the supply chain in China. So would this push back uh, Chinese ambitions for a certain period of time? Yes, it would. Uh, I mean, uh, leaving aside all the minute details like some corruption in some space and all of that stuff, but from a bigger picture perspective, uh, will this law kind of push back uh, China high-tech chip manufacturing? Yes, it would. Is it possible for countries to get together and to actually stop uh, the the never-ending manufacturing machine that is China, I think that's going to be extremely difficult to pull off. So, uh, sure, it does give them a little bit of a head start, uh, but I, I don't, personally, I don't think if you look, like, in the long run, you know, like, 10 years plus, uh, to stop China to be able to come up with this, create this own, their own technology mm. and to be able to scale up, I think it's going to be extremely difficult for the U.S. or for anyone else to pull off. So some analysts I've spoken to say the bill could benefit manufacturers. Intel, Texas Instruments, Micron Technology may provide less support for chip designers like Qualcomm, NVIDIA, Advanced Micro Devices. In light of this tussle over supply chain, semiconductor supply chains, are semiconductor stocks an interesting play? Yeah, so that's, you know, when you go into the more nuanced aspect of where uh, I personally would like to be investing in, uh, sure, uh, once again, right, like $52, $53 billion is a lot of money. It gives the initial subsidies to get these companies to set up onshore. Will that make it a true game changer for me to be able to invest in that space? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Mm -hmm. I would actually look at more on the design space, like companies like NVIDIA, uh, which has come off quite uh, a lot from its, uh, you know, record highs like six, nine months back on the back of this entire tech correction. But I, I think in terms of investment, mm -hmm. uh, NVIDIA at least is one stock that I'm looking a lot more closely at. Is it still a bit too expensive? I still feel it is, but uh, it's getting more into the uh, starting to invest range at least. All right. Let's change gears and take a look at oil prices, which have tumbled almost 30% in two months. Uh, Brent and WTI crude down more than 20% since June. On investors' radars, Arun, oil prices and where they'll head. In your opinion, what key factors would indicate oil prices could fall further? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much whether a recession is going to materialize or not, right? Like, I mean, if you look at the last recession back in uh, pre-Lehman times, uh, oil was like up to $150, $160. There were all these articles that came up about a super spike up in oil to 200 plus. Uh, a huge recession hit. I mean, the, the biggest the world has seen since uh, late 1920s. And it, uh, oil just cratered from 160 to 40. Over here, obviously, you know, COVID basically putting a pause to any kind of transportation or manufacturing activity for a good anywhere from like six months to a couple of years, depending on which part of the globe you're in, seen a decent correction. Uh, the past couple of months, uh, I think it's a little bit more of profit taking than, uh, and, you know, obviously some, uh, to some extent, fears of recession. But does that make an investment into the space? And again, I, I don't mean investing into the underlying like oil futures necessarily, but 
into the general space, be it oil manufacturing or refining, mm. uh, and especially I would say transportation, right? I mean, if we go back to the beginning of this year, uh, Scorpio tankers or product tankers was one space that I thought had the most to run up and mm, uh, seen a good 4X plus uh, appreciation or 400% appreciation in the share price. Um, so I, I think, you know, when it comes to such a commoditized industry, as an investor, you really need to figure out which part of the value chain you want to start investing in. Uh, the fact that oil is come uh, off 30% from the peak mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily make uh, oil producers, who's depending on which one you're talking about, be it Exxon, Occidental, any of these other ones, if their average uh, production cost of oil is anywhere between like the 30s to 40s mark, they are still making an extremely healthy margin, right? And we could see uh, Berkshire Hathaway taking a 20% stake in Mm. Occidental. I I think the fundamental issue with this space is uh, there's a lot of this ESG greenwashing that's been going around where a lot of capital has not been put into ensuring that the underlying infrastructure in the oil industry can is kept up to date, is able to churn out uh, the required amount of gallons per day uh, on the back of the lack of financing from banks, right? And uh, various sovereign wealth funds who don't want people to invest into it. Or an investor uh, who is purely looking at this from a monetary point of view, I think there are actually lo- lots of pockets within this industry that are still trading at very attractive multiples in spite of a 30% drop in price because it's gone from 120 to 90, right? I mean, if your average cost is 50, that's still a very, very healthy margin. When we come back, Arun, we're going to chat the latest chapter of the Elon Musk files, and we'll also discuss Airbnb. Everybody's traveling these days. What does that mean for the company, Airbnb? Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.